Cybersecurity firm Insights has released its latest research white paper, Selling Breaches, the Transfer of Enterprise Network Access on Criminal Forms, which delves into the sale and purchase of unauthorized access to compromised enterprise networks and how such activities have become a significant enabler for criminal cyber attackers, particularly ransomware infections. With the shift to remote work, the resulting increase in the use of remote access tools and services have given attackers more attack surface to exploit and fuel the marked increase in the sale of access to compromised networks. Recently, we spoke to Paul Prudholm, Head of Threat Intelligence at Insights, on some of the highlights of the report. So what exactly does the report say in terms of how these breaches are occurring? Where is it predominantly occurring? It occurs all over the world uh, and across uh, many different industries. There is a disproportionate focus uh, on the U.S. and other uh, industrialized countries, which are just popular targets for crime in general because they're they're more lucrative for criminals. And it also does happen across uh, all industries, uh, but some industries are more pro- popular targets uh, than others. We did see uh, by analyzing these statistics that the technology and telecom companies are the most popular targets by just a bit, followed closely in second place by financial services, uh, health healthcare, and uh, energy and industrials uh, at the top. Segregating the commercial aspects of this, I mean, there have been other security groups have been saying that uh, some of these attackers are actually either funded or supported, direct or indirect, by national interest. How true is that statement? Uh, there are other state-sponsored attacks, uh, but this paper does not concern them. Okay. Uh, it, it draws on uh, information from underground forums mm-hmm. uh, that are dedicated specifically to criminals, okay. uh, people who break the law for the sake of money. Now, with that said, there is some occasional overlap. Sometimes the governments mm-hmm. will hire criminals to do some work for them from time to time. Uh, and it is also, of course, possible that there are government agents going out to these forums to mm-hmm. buy data or to buy access. Uh, but generally speaking, this is not a state-sponsored phenomenon. Okay. Now, you mentioned that telcos are one of the primary targets, right? At the same time, the telcos are the businesses that actually control the infrastructure, the pipes where all this uh, data flows. I always have this opinion, and this is just my opinion, that in terms of accountability, shouldn't the telcos be the one that are the most robust as far as protecting the infrastructure? And, and to a certain degree, shouldn't they be accountable for the all the cyber hackings that are occurring today? One would hope so, and I do think they do tend to have fairly mature programs, but I'd say the most robust security uh, actually tends to be in financial services because of the you know, the nature of what they do. They are by far the most important target for criminals because that's where the money is. Yeah, that's where the money is, but it's also the most heavily regulated of all, so technically uh, well, speaking. Well, 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 all that too, yes. <laughs> there was an American bank robber who, who they asked him, well, well, why do you rob banks? Where the money because is. I'm- in terms of attack mode, what is the most common attack mode that the criminals are undertaking? There there are several uh, that we can talk about, uh, mm-hmm. although the actual level of insight that we have into that from these particular posts is limited. Uh, sometimes the actors do make it clear how they compromise these networks, and sometimes they do not. I believe one of the main reasons that this phenomenon has grown quite a bit over the past year and a half is as a result of the pandemic, uh, and specifically people working from home, which has required them to use a variety of remote access services to get access to company infrastructure from home using VPNs or the remote desktop protocol. Uh, we see pretty consistent that those are common persistence mechanisms. Uh, in other words, that's how the attacker maintains their access to whatever it is that they've compromised. And they will transfer those RDP or VPN credentials to the buyer as part of the sale. Now, it's not always clear that the RDP or the VPN or whatever other remote access they're selling, it's not always clear that that's how they got in. It's certainly possible that they got in through some other method. Uh, it, it is a very strong possibility that, that whatever that persistence mechanism is that they're selling uh, is also the way that they got in in the first place. I'll say with RDP, 
in particular, brute force attacks on the remote desktop protocol are one of the most popular methods for criminals to use uh, in general uh, and for ransomware operators in particular. And also with VPNs, there are a number of ways to compromise those, including uh, exploiting vulnerabilities in VPN software that hasn't been updated. Uh, you can even do social engineering attacks, sending people uh, links to download what they think is supposed to be VPN software, but is in fact malware or legitimate VPN software that's been muddled with malware. It's also possible for, for users who aren't familiar with the technology uh, to misconfigure their VPNs. So there are any number of ways that, that a VPN can serve as an attack vector, even though it's actually meant as a way to protect uh, users. <laughs> and it sort of defeats the purpose of why it was installed in the first place, or at least why they sell the, the solution well, and well, the service. It is still a good idea to use a VPN. You know, you know, just because it can be compromised doesn't mean you shouldn't use it. You know, Every line of defense will have a vulnerability in it, and ultimately uh, a robust security posture will have multiple lines of defense behind it. So if, if one layer of defense fails, you still have several other ones that can, that can stop an attack. So you just said the recommendation is to have multiple layers of security to technologies to protect an enterprise network, for example. Doesn't that implementation of multiple lines of defense impact the performance of a network from the point of view of the users that are accessing that network? There is always going to be a trade-off between usability and security. Security uh, is often inconvenient, and that is the nature of the beast. With that said, there are some things that one can do that, that have very little or just a minor impact on usability. So, for example, uh, two-factor authentication uh, is a very important way to protect uh, accounts. You know, not just your username and password, uh, but also a code of, you know, let's say four to six digits that, that only you should have access to just to make sure that it is you. Uh, and also, if an attacker does somehow manage to compromise your password, uh, they should not be able to get access to that second factor, and thus they won't be able to get access. The most common way uh, historically to implement two-factor authentication has been through text messages. The only problem is that that can be vulnerable uh, interception. Uh, for example, by compromising a telecom company, uh, as we mentioned earlier, uh, you can actually reassign somebody's phone number to another SIM card that an attacker has, and you can use that to steal their two-factor authentication codes. Uh, a better way to do two-factor authentication is through a mobile app, uh, which is not vulnerable to that sort of attack, uh, and also for Frankly, it's less inconvenient, I think, than getting the, the second factor authentication code through a text message. You know, sometimes the text messages take a while to arrive and you're sitting there waiting. And I can see why that would be a bidding. But the mobile authenticator app, you know, there, there are no delays in it like there are with the text message. Uh, and also, uh, some two-factor authentication uh, apps like Duo, for example, uh, will actually give you the option to get a, a push or a prompt uh, on your phone uh, that you can accept, which is a bit quicker uh, than actually having to manually type in that two-factor authentication code. So, so yes, there, it, it, the two-factor authentication does add a, a degree of inconvenience. Uh, I think the value that it adds to your defense is worth that relatively modest uh, amount of inconvenience. We talk about the sale of access to of compromised networks. Uh, where do you find this? in the dark web? How, uh, how yes. do you do that? Uh, say I want to target a bank. What are the steps that I need to do or where do I go to, to make this acquisition of that whatever information I need in order to be to compromise a target net? Go to these underground forums where criminals and other miscreants gather in order to buy, sell, and exchange a variety of malicious products and services. This sale of compromised network access is just one of many types of criminal products and services that you can buy there. Uh, you can buy a malware. You can buy 
infrastructure to use to support attacks. You can buy compromised data uh, without buying access to it. Uh, you can buy compromised credit cards, uh, fake IDs, you name it. This is a black market for all, all sorts of malicious products and services. This is just one of them. That It has been around for a while, but it has matured and exploded numerically in the past year and a half as a result of the rise of the remote workforce uh, during the pandemic. And uh, in terms of the regulatory environment, the police, uh, Interpol, know that they're not able to somehow contain these dark web communities? To a degree. There, you know, certainly, the criminals who populate these communities do have a high level of pretty awareness uh, that there are, in fact, uh, undercover security researchers and law enforcement who monitor uh, these communities and pose as criminals uh, in order to collect information from them. Uh, but with that said, it can be difficult. It does happen. There, there have been certainly many examples, law, international uh, or, or local law enforcement, uh, identifying and arresting uh, cyber criminals. Uh, but it can be difficult for any number of reasons. One, uh, some of them do practice very strong operational security uh, that makes it difficult or impossible to identify and locate them, uh, although some do not. And it is sometimes very easy to actually figure out who they are. Uh, you can find their personal Facebook account Accounts, uh, and all other sorts of personal details about them. Uh, another issue is, is degree of uh, international cooperation with law enforcement. Uh, there has been, of course, uh, discussion recently in the wake of the colonial pipeline attack uh, in the U.S. about the degree to which Russia and other former Soviet republics serve as a safe haven for criminals insofar as the Russian government refuses uh, to take action against those criminals that commit crimes uh, in foreign countries. Uh, basically, they, they just don't see that as their problem. Uh, so by having this safe place, so to speak, beyond the reach of Western law enforcement uh, that has allowed the Russian-speaking criminal communities to thrive, uh, and they are probably the single most sophisticated and most prolific uh, segment of the online criminal population. There was a report I read uh, earlier this year that to a certain degree, all the software technologies that information security organizations are implementing, uh, they're also being used against the very organizations that they are meant to protect, or it's starting to happen that way. What are your thoughts on that? No security is perfect. You know, VPN is mentioned, and it is a line of defense, uh, and it is still a good line of defense, even though, as I pointed out, uh, it can actually be used as an attack vector. And again, two-factor authentication, which is a good line of defense that everybody should have. That does not mean that it is immune to attack. Again, no defense is perfect, so you should have those multiple layers of defense in place. You should assume that at, at some point, uh, at least one, if not several of those lines of defense will fail, uh, and hope that at least one will hold. It also hints that the potential of zero trust policy, that there is vulnerability in zero trust as well. There's vulnerability everywhere. There's no such thing as perfect security. Uh, I think zero trust reduces that vulnerability insofar as the attackers uh, like to abuse that trust. And if there is no trust for them to abuse, uh, that does make it harder for them to do their jobs. Not impossible, but it still makes their lives harder. And, and actually, there's no way you can 100% prevent an attack, uh, but you can actually deter criminals at least by making it too hard for them. Because at the end of the day, you know, they're just trying to make money. So if they find that a potential victim is simply too hard to compromise, not impossible but just too hard it's too much work uh, they'll just go somewhere else yeah. uh, now that defense does not work against state-sponsored attacks because state-sponsored attackers are going after a particular target for a particular political uh, or intelligence reason uh, and they can't just go after somebody else so, so, so it will not work against them if they want you they will get you uh, and they will throw uh, everything that they get you think at you until they get it. <laughs> talking about for security professionals those are the CISOs and the likes where are the opportunities for these professionals in terms of using intelligence to to better improve the security of the infrastructure that they are meant to protect. Threat intelligence is a key component of those defense. 
uh, that I mentioned earlier, multiple lines of defense. In fact, I would argue it is it should be your outermost ring uh, of defense. It can tell you about threats uh, and how to defend against them before they actually go after your network and not after they get into your network. Because if they've already gotten into your network, then you don't need threat intelligence anymore. You need incident response. So having that awareness and being forewarned is forearmed, uh, as the saying goes. Uh, you can take more steps to protect yourself. As far as specific types of intelligence go, many of the intelligence feeds and sources uh, that, that organizations rely on do tend to be of a heavily technical nature, coming from companies that have detection and response telemetry, you know, there or antivirus software vendors, uh, the tech new malware. Uh, all those are fine, but I do think it is important to balance that technical focus with intelligence sources from human sources, specifically coverage of the underground forums, uh, like what we see here. So, for example, uh, you can learn if you intelligence feed uh, that has coverage of these dark web uh, criminal communities, uh, and you see an advertisement somebody selling access to a company that sounds a a lot like yours, you might want to look into that and see if, if some criminal is selling access to your network. That's a possibility you should definitely look into. Uh, even if it is not actually your network, you can certainly learn uh, examples from it. You know, if you see that the actor is selling RDP access to this company's network, you know, perhaps they got in through RDP. So you should make sure that you've, you've closed down your RDP ports that you're not using. Maybe do make sure you enable two-factor authentication on any RDP services that you are in fact using. If you think you have been compromised, uh, doing an audit of all the active uh, RDP accounts is a good idea just to see if, if, if there's any suspicious activity to indicate uh, that an attacker is using this as a uh, persistence mechanism for a breach that was uh, bought or sold, uh, as in the report. What comprises cyber threat intelligence? could be anything from, from uh, feeds of in- indicators, which are, I would say are the building blocks of threat intelligence. Uh, they're not threat intelligence by themselves, but they are the basic units. Things like the MD5 uh, or SHA-1 or SHA-256 hashes for malware samples that security researchers have identified. IP addresses and domains that the attackers are using to control their malware uh, or to exfiltrate data. Things like that. So file hashes, network infrastructure. There are also other things like uh, mutexes, changes to registry keys and so on to look for changes that attackers might make in order to maintain persistence compromised machine. So that's at a very sort of narrowly uh, tactical level. More broadly, you want to defend against not just very specific technical indicators, but but against the specific tactics, techniques, and procedures that actors use to compromise networks. So for example, from reading the report that we've been discussing, uh, you would learn that uh, right now RDP services uh, and VPNs are extremely popular persistence mechanisms or possibly initial access vectors uh, for many of these types of attacks, taking advantage of people working for home. So with that information, you would learn that perhaps protecting the RDP uh, services and VPNs should be a, a higher priority, uh, perhaps, than, than it was before. Uh, making sure that your RDP services are closed if you don't need them, that they have two-factor authentication if you do need them. If you have any reason to suspect that they're being used to gain or maintain access, uh, you should do audits. Uh, same with VPNs. Make sure you update the VPN software. Uh, make sure it's properly configured. What sort of credentials or expertise or experience should this team have to remain relevant today? In particular, given that we have, as you say, remote work, so it's changed a little bit how I could imagine the way we secure the infrastructure. I think a threat intelligence team should have a variety of skill sets to it. I'd say the majority of people are, are have more conventional backgrounds in technology and security in particular, besides things like learning how to ask the right questions. In other words, when you're going around collecting threat intelligence, you don't just collect all the information you can find. You formulate questions, the answers to which will help you make specific decisions to improve your security posture. Learning how to formulate priority intelligence requirements, or PIRs, uh, that will be sort of the shopping list of your intelligence program that can you know, bring you focus uh, and guide your analysts and not just have them collecting all the information that there is uh, because if you do that you're just going to be overwhelmed uh, with large volumes of information that are not necessarily helpful to you.
at what point in my planning should I consider outsourcing aspects of my security strategy? For cyber threat intelligence, I will say that it is typical for many organizations to have a degree of outsourcing, at least in terms of uh, the production collection of information. Uh, so, for example, if you run a cyber threat intelligence at a large bank, they will buy access to a variety of feeds and uh, services from a number of different vendors. Uh, they'll have a threat intelligence uh, platform like ours uh, that will help them uh, integrate, digest, uh, and absorb uh, that information. Uh, but they will also, now that is just for consumption, uh, ultimately they have to decide on how to act on that information, uh, how to make sure, for example, that the SOC teams uh, have access to what they need, how to highlight particular pieces of intelligence that have a high impact uh, and that might you know, cause leadership to actually change security policies or make additions uh, to the current defense posture based on that intelligence. Learning how to recognize what is and isn't significant, who needs to know it, and, and then who, who might actually make a decision uh, on the basis of that intelligence that will make the organization more secure than it was before. Where do I start if I, uh, if to address this? Do I whether I need to have a sock of our own or whether I should just outsource my security requirements altogether. A smaller company might be better off outsourcing, whereas a larger company might want to do that in-house so that they have the greater resources. And also, as of banks in particular, uh, we, you know, the, the sensitivity of that and then also the greater maturity of the security culture that they have, uh, that's the kind of thing that they probably do internally. But if it's a small company, perhaps in an industry that is not quite as robust uh, from a security perspective, uh, let's say healthcare, for example, that's a situation where it might uh, make more sense to outsource it to a, a company that does nothing but secure. Leave Paul, thank you for joining me on Podchats for Future CIO. All right. Thank you. That was Paul Prudhom, Head Threat Intelligence Advisory at Insights, a Rapid7 company. You are listening in to Podchats for Future CIO. As always, if you have a topic you'd like us to cover on this channel, simply email us at editors at society.com. We'd also like to invite you to sign up for our free weekly newsletter so you won't miss an episode of Podchats for Future CIO. In the meantime, stay safe, have a great day, and see you on the next episode of Podchats for Future CIO. Bye for now.